0: And welcome to Pods Own Country, the Yorkshire Post Political Podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and we're back after Christmas and New Year. And I've got Rob here as well. Hi Rob.
1: Morning. Happy New Year. Are we still allowed to say that? Uh it's a few days into 2021. Can we still say Happy New Year? I'm not sure.
0: I mean, there's a debate every year, isn't there, about how um how long you can drag it out for. But no, I think we can keep going. It's our first one back, yeah. surely. We can have a
1: transition period between when we're saying Happy New Year and then when we're not for the next few days, just gradually, gradually phase it out.
0: A transition period. I never want to hear those words
1: again. (laughs) Yes. You thought you got rid of that phrase, but it's back.
0: Uh, Did you have a good Christmas? It was
1: very good. Thank you. Yes. I have two small children and they very much enjoyed uh, opening presents and uh having the mum and dad around all the time so yeah it was it was it was lovely very very nice thank you uh since since christmas in the new year it hasn't been quite quite so good as i barely left the house uh i think yesterday was a red letter day as i went for a very short run around the block uh (laughs) trying not to slip on the ice because it's very icy in north leeds at the moment and then went back to my living room which is where i've been spending the vast majority of my time how about how about you
0: well, your Christmas was very different to mine. I have no children, so it was uh, my partner and I holed up in our flat, um, gradually drinking more throughout the day, frankly. Oh, <laughs> oh, I still did,
1: I, oh, I still did a fair amount of drinking. Don't don't get me wrong on that point. <laughs> oh,
0: God, well, loads has happened, hasn't it, since we were last, um, well, since the last episode of um, Podzane Country and, you know, Brexit and uh, a third national lockdown, and it's all going on. But this has all kind of meant some pretty serious things for the next few months as well, since we don't know really when this is going to end, do we?
1: No. And uh, I guess one of the the manifestations of that which you've been uh, looking at and I've been looking at a bit this week as well is what it might mean for the local elections uh, in, it, well, in Yorkshire, but also further afield as well. I think it was supposed to be, it, it was going to be a bumper crop of local elections on May the 6th this year because obviously yeah, they're, calling
0: it super thursday, well, aren't they? they're calling
1: it super thursday rather <laughs> optimistically i think but uh even so for people who love local democracy i guess it would have been a uh it is it is a big day uh and last summer's elections were postponed until uh until this summer uh but it, it's now there it seems like a, a growing suspicion that uh it, they're not going to happen uh on time given that we don't know what Restrictions are going to be in place around the country, sort of n- not just in May, but in the in you know in, in the weeks leading up to it uh, as as well. And I, I see it's been reported that Greater Manchester's uh, metro mayoral elections and city elections are going to be uh, postponed. Um, it's it's still up in the air as to whether that might be autumn uh, or maybe later in the summer uh it's it's a bit of a, a movable feast at the moment i think and and the the it, yeah. it would be up to the government uh to make that decision and it appears that no such decision has been made yet but you know people are still starting to plan for uh, elections potentially being being put back
0: yeah, I mean, I was in the well, I was going to say in the virtually in the Commons on um, you know earlier on in the week when when they called to uh, approve the third lockdown. Usually, I'd obviously be sitting in the press gallery behind the speaker, but that's been many months since I've been able to do that. But virtually, I was in the Commons, and uh, Boris Johnson was asked about this uh, by a uh, Labour MP, who said, "You know, are the are the May elections going to go ahead?" And he said, "You know, the law says that yes." They will go ahead on May the 6th. But you did say, you know, but of course, we've got to keep that under review, a phrase that we've got really, really used to hearing. And, um, you know, there's a there's a daily briefing for Westminster journalists, which I um, um, take part in as well. And the Prime Minister's official spokesman said pretty much the same thing. You know, we will need to keep it under review. And it doesn't instill confidence, does it, that things will go ahead.
1: No, I mean, I guess most people would say that the government has a bit of a, a track record for saying that something certainly isn't going to happen right up until the point that they cave into pressure and then it does happen. You could point to a few different uh, scenarios mm-hmm. where, where that's been the case.
0: most recently. Yes,
1: well, exactly. And and uh, I guess the fact that they're already saying that, that the local elections might not happen in May makes it sort of quite likely that... Uh, there will be some kind of changes I guess you know for the point of view of people who are planning these things they would want to get notice about it as early as uh, as early as possible uh, to, to help them with their with their planning but there are there are going to be or if they go ahead there's going to be quite a few big ones in Yorkshire uh, this 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 year you obviously got the the first um, West Yorkshire mayoral, uh Metro mayoral, Elections, which uh, will be quite a, a landmark uh, occasion, creating the second uh, metro mayor for Yorkshire after after Dan Jarvis, uh, and uh, you know, obviously up in in the Tees Valley, Ben Houchen uh, is is seeking re-election. Um, Doncaster and Rotherham are both having. All out elections as well, and there is going to be the the, local, the 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 mayor of Doncaster will be re-elected, who obviously has a, a different role to the the metro mayors elsewhere in the the region. Uh, another interesting one is is North Yorkshire because uh, the county council elections in North Yorkshire are every four years, um, but uh, it, it may well be that those elections don't go ahead for another reason because obviously there is this whole debate over uh the reorganization of local government services in north yorkshire uh and that you know whether it's the the possibility that there might be one whole new unitary authority created for north yorkshire or maybe two either side of the a1 depending on what the government uh decides and so there's calls from political leaders for the 2021 local elections in north yorkshire to be cancelled Or postponed either way, so that they because they're going to have a different number of councillors under this new system, Uh, and so it'd be a bit pointless electing people on the uh, existing basis if they would just have to re elect new people later.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there's a couple of interesting bits there, aren't there? Because West Yorkshire, in particular, we already know Labour's candidate, Tracy Braben, who's uh, currently the MP for Batley and Spen, but the Tories don't have a candidate. Yeah, or at least they haven't announced one if they have got one. And we don't know when they will be um, announcing one. Tracy has obviously said that she wants um, the elections to to go ahead. Now, no one is suggesting that um, they might <laughs> postpone that because because uh, they don't have a candidate yet. But, you know, time is getting short. They need to hurry up and find someone, don't they?
1: Yeah, they, they do. I mean, it's, it's been surprising to me, I think, that they haven't been able to find a big name uh, person within their ranks to to stand given the you know the, the relative success they had in west yorkshire taking a few seats in the in in the 2019 general election you, you'd think that they would feel they had a decent decent chance but you know the the people that we've sounded out uh have 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 declined to put themselves forward we've heard a few uh uh unconventional names also that have been suggested to us uh and but but as, as yet no one no one publicly has put themselves forward which i yeah i feel it's quite surprising the, the,
0: the, the, goss- the gossiper in question will uh, will remain anonymous but it has been suggested to me that um chris kamara might be a candidate
1: I mean, that is, well, unbelievable, Jeff, would be a phrase that I would use, which I know you won't get because you don't really like football, but it's... Uh...
0: Straight over my head, but I'm sure listeners um will get it. But the other thing about these local elections, right, is that they were going to really be the first, I guess, you know, marking sheet for both Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, because it's the first time that voters would have gone to the polls since um, Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party and since... December election with Boris Johnson's um, you know massive victory so I really think it was going to be may still be if they go ahead a real you know tick sheet a real kind of assessment of how the country thinks thinks they're doing of course like in local elections as we know people do vote on local issues tend to more than party lines but you know it would have been an opportunity for voters to give one or the other a bit of a bloody nose as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like you say, there is, it is, I think, more so in local elections than in general elections. Uh, I think in in general elections, as we saw in 2019, people tend to vote just on, this is the big national issue. And this is what I think about it. But in local elections, there are all kinds of other local things at play. And it can be like super local stuff about, you know, bins being collected and stuff like that can influence who people vote for as their, as as their councillor. But I mean, we've seen Labour closing the gap in the polls because it's you know, been a very challenging uh, year for the government, and so I guess the expectation would be that they would make uh, make make some gains. But maybe we'll maybe we won't we won't find out.
0: Yeah, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Rob, you're doing the big interview on the podcast this week. Who have you got? So
1: this week uh, is, is is a really interesting one, I think. Um, it's with uh, Barry White, who is the chief executive of Transport for the North, the strategic transport body. And um, he's... he's
0: Not to be confused with Barry White, of the same name. I thought you'd got us a really big name then. I,
1: I, I did try for him. Uh, I had to settle for <laughs> the slightly less well-known Barry White in, in the end. But uh, <laughs> yeah. this Barry White probably has a bit more to say about strategic transport in Yorkshire. Uh, and actually it was quite fascinating. He's, he's been in post now for three years and he's uh, he's, he's leaving to go on a career break um, uh, later this, later this year, but he's had quite a lot of ups and downs. Um, you know, the, the rail ca- timetable chaos of 2018, the, you know, ups and downs of HS2 and, you know, the general sort of uncertainty over uh, who makes the decisions about, northern transport so, so there's a lot to talk about and uh, yeah I, I think it was it was it was quite interesting.
0: Let's have a listen to what he's got to say.
1: So for my guest today I'm joined by Barry White the Chief Executive of Transport for the North. He's been in the top role at the organisation since 2018 but is leaving it in, in May next year uh, so what better time to catch up with him about the highs and the lows of the past three years in what is a, a crucial and often contentious area of public policy. Uh, Barry, how are you? I'm,
2: I'm very well, thank you, Rob. And, and yes, I'm I'm be I'm three years in this role, and uh, and uh, i continue continuing this role until May 21. So
1: fantastic. So a few months a few months left, but a good opportunity, I think, to uh, reflect on sort of how 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 it's all been uh, in in the role since 2018. Um so. Prior to joining TFN, you, you've always worked in, in roles involving capital projects and infrastructure. I think the, before you joined, you, you had a your chief executive at the Scottish Futures Trust. And so, what got you sort of interested in this area of uh, uh, this area of work, and, and what sort of what attracted you to transport for the North in the in in the first place?
2: Well, I think a, a number of things. I've, I've my background very much as one in the private sector in the construction industry and also in in, uh, government bodies looking after major programs of investment and while those programs of investment are themselves important and actually good fun to be involved with because actually working on big projects is interesting and fun uh, the, the real sort of passion that lies behind that is the difference it can have in people's lives so in my previous role you know building affordable rent homes at scale for people so that people could actually um, you know, afford the rent more easily um, or or indeed completing the M8 motorway between Edinburgh and Glasgow. So this makes a difference to people's lives. Therefore, when I looked at Transport for the North as an opportunity, I could actually just see the North had been badly served by underinvestment for, for decades um, and actually, you know, still remember being quite shocked the first time I got the train from Manchester to Bradford and realised just quite how slow that journey was. So seeing the difference that could be made and the opportunity to make it, and that was really the reason I took this role on, because I think the North has been badly served for a long time.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people would would agree with you uh, on that one. Um, so TFN itself is, is a relatively unusual organization it's the first statutory subnational transport body in, in, in the uk and obviously when you joined it was still in its sort of uh, formative early stages and, and perhaps you could explain to people who don't know about tfn like what 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 it's what what purpose it serves and, and when you joined how much of a conversation was there about how, how it was going to work and what its, its sort of purpose would be in the in, in the grand in the grand scheme of things
2: so if I just summarise what TFN does, just to help people's understanding of that. Um, it, it is a sub-national transport body looking at what's called a strategic transport network. So that's things like the bigger roads, the motorways and the larger A roads. And it's looking at the real network. And our main role is to set out priorities to government as advice to government on the investment priorities for the north. Um, but we also then have some very specific roles where there is greater devolution to the north Uh, and for instance on in managing the rail services we have a co-management role with the department for transport over the two franchises in the north TransPennine and northern Um, they were franchised they're slightly different now but but co-managing those and getting that local input and also on some major projects smart ticketing or northern powerhouse rail we, we have uh, on, on northern powerhouse rail a co-clienting function with the department for transport so we're doing that development work on northern powerhouse rail jointly and on uh, smart ticketing we have a, a a budget set to to deliver smart ticketing schemes which we've been doing and continue to do so certainly diff- differing roles but it's it, 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 in, in different elements of the transport network but the overarching aim is to get greater investment into the north to improve economic opportunities and to improve the quality of life for people in the north so that's so it all sits under that umbrella yeah rope.
1: yeah absolutely and would it would it be fair to say that um obviously transport from the north as you've set out has uh, quite a few powers and responsibilities but there are also things obviously it it doesn't have uh it doesn't have the power the ability to raise your own raise your own funds and yeah to, to some extent you're reliant on central government for the sort of um the, the work the work that you do was was that I mean I, I assume that was apparent even when you you started has, has that been something of a frustration to you or has it it's just something that you has always been the case and you, you sort of worked within the I guess the, 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 that, that context those those limitations that were set at the start I
2: think so you're, so you're right, um, the way in which funding works for almost all of what we do, that comes from general taxation from Westminster. And that is not a, a frustration to me in the sense that, you know, sometimes a comparisons drawing with the transport for London that um, has got greater powers, but it's also got a different role. And actually, what I've always said is that if you look at, Transport for North's powers and combine those with say transport for Greater Manchester's powers. Those between us, we probably have some greater degree of authority over transport than transport for London has. Um, but we have an appetite for greater devolution. We th- we think that strategic transport network would be better served by enhanced local decision making rather than just advice, and th- and that's something that you know over time we would seek to move to. But uh, uh, as as uh, Mayor Dan Jarvis has said many times, you're know, uh, devolution to journey, not 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 a single point in time, and that, and and actually that will change, I think, over time.
1: Yeah, that's 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 interesting, and and yeah, I, I, obviously you do have uh, in in some areas more responsibilities than others, and the um I, I guess one of the things that it, it seems like such a long time ago now, back in going back to 2018, so not long after you. Uh, joined, we had the, the the timetable, uh, the, the timetable fiasco with obviously in, the introduction of new timetables uh, in Northern England and some parts of the South uh, as well, which led to a huge amount of disruption and you know a, a lot of uh, suffering for commuters and and, and rail users. You, obviously, TfN, you have that. Function of of co-managing the uh, the the, fran- the franchises. I mean, it seems like uh, it seems like a, a, almost a lifetime ago that that was happening. because so much has, has happened since, but what was it like to be at the centre of that and trying to sort of make things better as, as best you could for 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 rail users in in the North who were really really suffering at that time. So-
2: So you're right, it does seem like a lifetime ago in some ways, given the crisis we've gone through this year or in in, in 2020 with COVID. So I think think, um, stepping into that and just seeing how fragmented the industry was and how there was such a lack of focus on passengers or customers um, was actually really eye-opening to me because actually when you asked who was responsible for um solving this, you know, industry was looking at each other and sort of the whole contractual nature of how the real industry worked means everybody points the finger at everybody else, which is really unhelpful. And that's why we've said, you know, in the interests of passengers, track and train, that management of both the track and 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 trains, the the, the real services, must come closer together and be much more integrated and that's the big lesson I think that was learned through that but it but it was dreadful actually and 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 you know I remember spending my silver wedding anniversary, which was just a month after that, you know having multiple phone calls um trying to you know just trying to get things moving forward again, trying to get some short term measures put in place that would alleviate some of the most immediate problems but it left some communities really badly served for a long time and, and you, one example being you know the service to windermere um for for that summer was really um appalling and actually you know communities suffered a lot as a result of an industry failure and and that is something is is i, I think you know something i think was actually awful for those communities and I think industry has learned a lot, but I think I don't think all those lessons are yet fully embedded in how industry goes about the real industry goes about its business. And I think there's a lot more to do to put the passenger at the centre of um, railway decision making.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the I mean the, the, the Williams Review that has been long promised by the, the government was obviously supposed to be uh, at the at the heart of that. And we, we haven't heard much about uh, the Williams Review. But do, do, do you think that those lessons will Ultimately, be learned, and that, that sort of the, the rail industry will be. Are, are you optimistic that it will be reformed in the way that you've you've described?
2: So I think there's a number of good things have happened. So the nature of franchising, I think, has already changed because of COVID. Um, so it's actually now where the government coordinates services much more and actually takes the revenue risk. So. It's less about competition between franchises and it's more about integrating services for the benefit of passengers. And we think the Williams Review has never been published. It's it's a review review for the government that's never seen the light of day yet. But we believe that was one of the central recommendations that just changing that contract structure so that it meant you focus less on your contractual obligations and much more on running trains on time running clean trains, uh, you're improving the quality of the trains you runs so that passengers want to use them more. So there's a whole lot of things that I think are just really good common sense uh, measures that the change in the franchising system to um, more of a management contract with very clear deliverables, I think will help enormously. But we would like to see the Williams Review published because part of what they were going to look at is about how to devolve more to local areas, whether that be city regions or, or, or regions. And, you know, there's I think there's a, a number of stepping stones in that that I think can be very useful for the north as well to get better integration within city regions between light rail bus and rail services, which I think we have... An opportunity to do more that way so that people can swap from one mode of transport to the other much more easily. And I think that's what London has had for some time, but we don't have in the north uh, and must be a, a clear step. We must have clear stepping stones towards that because that integration is about actually how we enable people to choose to use public transport rather than rather than using their car and and that's going to be something we all need to see more yeah yeah absolutely
1: i mean it's interesting isn't it how the pandemic has uh changed uh uh, the way that we go about doing pretty much everything but obviously transport is one of the 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 key things that it it has changed i mean some of the do you think it's true that some of the assumptions that we previously would have made about what transport will look like in the coming years and decades are now having to be re rewritten as a result of the pandemic and the change in our in our habits. I mean I i guess I'm thinking specifically about things like high speed rail and you know the assumption was that uh getting quickly between say Leeds and Manchester is uh was going to be hugely important for the way the northern economy was going to run. It do you believe that still to be the case now post pandemic given what we know about how people's travelling habits ha- ha- have changed?
2: Well, we all would love to sort of see into the future and, and be and be certain, but I, I would say the change we have witnessed this year has been really fascinating. So people have been able to work from home to a much greater extent than many people thought was possible. Uh, overall, though, I think that's an acceleration of a trend that's been self it's been pretty evident for some time, that people were increasingly working from home. And therefore, you know, our prediction very much is around a, a mixed working pattern in the future where people will work in the office two days a week, perhaps rather than four days a week, uh, as, as it may, may have done historically. And when we speak to major employers, that's the sort of feedback we're getting. So there still will be a number of people who have to travel every day because the nature of their job means that there'll be a number of people who will travel for leisure reasons. There'll be a number of people who will travel um, less than they did in the past. Um, And that has a number of impacts. So it will in the short term mean a dip in for revenue. So we we will have less money coming into the railway system in in the short term. But what we need to do is say, well, actually, because people are now working from home a bit more, how can we use that released capacity that the seats that are now available to people, how can we use that to attract car users to switch to public transport, to switch to whether it be rail, whether it be light rail, whether it be bus, uh, actually to the extent you know we've, we've gone from perhaps being too crowded to having some capacity spare, let's really try to get people to swap to public transport. Uh, and actually the greenest journey of all is no journey. So actually people working from home is a great thing actually in many ways. If we can marry that up with getting that swapping to public transport I, I, I think we have a very vibrant future ahead for public transport that's
1: interesting yeah and that that does very much tie in with a lot of work that's going on sort of in, in individual cities to encouraging more more sustainable transport cycling and walking etc so it will be interesting to see what what happens with that and um, with looking back on your Three years sort of more 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 generally i mean what what do you consider to be the sort of the biggest achievements uh, of, of transport for the north in in that time and also what what's the thing that sort of most frustrated you or most challenged you during during, during this period
0: well
2: uh, there's been many great things so the team of people at transport for the north and our board members are just fantastic people to work with you know and and, and actually the passion to drive forward um, a better quality of life and greater investment in the North, greater economic opportunities. It's such a unifying mission and being part of that has just been really uh, fabulous. And in many ways, one of the highlights, therefore, was in um, February 19, when we published our strategic transport plan, which really set out that vision for the North um, You know, about more jobs, greater economic opportunity and from that point of view you know that was the first time there was a sort of cohesive strategic transport plan for the north that and on the same day, we also approved the strategic outline business case for northern powerhouse rail seeking thirty nine billion pounds of investment into improving those east west links and and as a country, we've generally been better at north south links than we have at east west and and You know, improving the Liverpool to Hull journey, which includes Manchester and Leeds clearly as well, linking Bradford in in a way that hasn't been possible. now. These are, you know, getting to that point where you go, we're getting closer to getting that investment secured, getting that opportunity delivered for the people of the north. So so the highlights uh, have continued in many ways. We've continued to um, work on the business case and development of Northern Powerhouse Rail. And in March 21, we will submit the strategic outline case. So that's the next step in the business case, that will just have the refined development, extra development of, of, of the options for Northern Powerhouse Rail, and that ambition remains really strong. And the final highlight that I would, uh, you know, which uh, is, is one where we have, you know, worked to manage, you know, improvements in the railways. And we've seen a billion pounds worth of rolling stock be introduced on the real network. We've seen the end of the Pacers um, at long last, some might say, but yes, we have seen the end of them. Um, having traveled in those trains myself, the difference between when I started three years ago and now, you know, when you stand in Leeds Station or you stand in Manchester Station and you look at, at, the, at the concourse across all the platforms, it looks like a different railway station because the rolling stock is so much more modern, so much more comfortable, uh, Wi-Fi is better. So that plus introducing some smart ticketing around that as well for real passengers. So people can um, you know, get a, a smart flexi season ticket where you can buy 10 journeys for the price of nine. And we're rolling that out on a gradual basis. And just seeing that sort of more modern way of buying tickets and how that can actually make it more accessible for people to travel in different ways. So that whole development of the railway service in the north of England has been a great uh, uh, sort of sense of achievement around that. Uh, the one negative I'd say is there's always a the frustration that things never move as quickly as you would like. And and I would, you know, you're working within a government body, you have to have a Sense of great patience, determination, and resilience because the system and processes, particularly the decision-making processes in central government, it feels at times as if people are putting obstacles in your way, and you just have to work your way through those. You know the system is there for a reason, but you know the number of reviews we have. You know, so if you look at things like you know um, connectivity from HS2, you know we have the Oaktree review. And that seems to come to inclusion. Then with the NIC, National Infrastructure Commission Review, and that seems to sort of question, you know. And I think just sometimes as a country, we should make our mind up, make decisions and get on and do it. And I think that would be probably my sense of frustration in this role, that there hasn't been enough of that, that hasn't been within our control. But I think it is something that we all would agree as a country would be better with those faster cleaner decisions yeah
1: absolutely and um i know you you spoke uh before christmas about the um uh the, as you say the national infrastructure commission review so they were asked by the government to uh sort of look into how the various um big infrastructure projects could be uh could could be done and could be integrated together and and uh, i think for many people particularly advocates of hs2 the results are quite um, concerning. And uh, essentially, they, they sort of said that uh, sort of regional transport links should be prioritised at the expense of uh, completing HS2 uh, all the way up to Leeds. So there's a genuine concern, I think, amongst many that that final leg of, of HS2 might not happen now. I mean, is that is that your assessment of it? And obviously, you know, Northern Powerhouse Rail really is your your big project do you worry that this will have a knock-on impact on on, on that project as
2: well? well there was a number of points i'd make about that so first of all the the status of the national infrastructure commission's report is one of advice to government It's their advice to government like they are a independent advisor to government they're sort of a, in my language, they're owned by the Treasury and they're an agency set up by the Treasury, but they have an independent board of commissioners and and so on. So this is their advice to government. It is for government to decide just quite what the level of investment is as as a result of that advice and the government's view overall. Now, the National Infrastructure Commission had a tough job to do, but they did it from, I think, what was a fundamentally flawed starting point. It was fundamentally flawed because they took a limitation of um, 46 billion pounds for the budget for HS2. Now that was a budget in their their 2018 assessment and the actual starting point should have been the government's position of a budget of 90 billion pounds for High Speed 2. So the government in February 20 committed to build high speed two in full. And actually, remember the Prime Minister came up with, I thought it was a brilliant quote, because he was talking about this in Parliament. He said, we're we're not asking whether phase two B is not to be. That is not the question. The question is how we can bring a transport revolution to the north sooner. So the government in February 20 has a policy commitment to build high speed two in full and yet the the national infrastructure commission took a position at the outset of their review that said let's assume there's only enough money to build half of it so I, I, that's just a mismatch between government commitment and uh, so because of that flawed starting point everything else then becomes almost a question of how do you squeeze a quart into a pint pot type thing and and that's that the whole idea of this review was about how we sequence and integrate things, not about whether we do them or not. And I think it has become, unfortunately, um, their report has become much more, how do you choose between these things, rather than how do you do them better together? And I think we have to work with government now to get back to that, how do we do this better together? Yeah.
1: So, so as far as you're concerned, the, the NIC's report is not the, uh, it's not the final say on the matter, and you'll continue lobbying the government before they put out their integrated rail plan, which is which is the definitive sort of document about the, you know, the NIC's methodology was flawed and that actually, yeah, the, the, there's a strong case to be made for, uh, for for looking at this in a different a different way.
2: Yes, so I think the NIC, the NIC had a, a tough job to do. And not necessarily the methodology as the starting point was flawed. You know, they actually, you know, they've come up with many good things about how you value different ways in which you look at, contact. you know, the, so, some of the, some of their approach, I thought was quite clever in how it looked at things, but because it had that fundamental flaw in the starting point, much of that analysis, because it came from that, uh, the genesis was not flawed starting point, really, I think got into a place of the wrong decisions rather than, sorry, asking for the wrong decisions rather than asking the right questions about how we do this better together. So um, our our next step will be as a a board um, with 20 leaders, political leaders from across the North with business leaders on our board as well, will be to give advice to government saying, this is the view of Transport for the North on what should be an integrated rail plan. And it will in part be around saying you have committed to HS2 in full and therefore the integrated rail plan should assume that, you know, that 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 must be the starting point. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And so you you yourself have five months in in post before you uh, before you leave. I mean, presumably getting Northern Powerhouse Rail, getting that submission in. Uh, is, is a large part of what you'd like to do before you leave. I mean, do, do you do you have any plans for after after you leave TFN, or is, is it just a, you know see what see what comes?
2: Well, my my I do have a plan. Uh, so yes, first of all, I would be very much getting the round track to get the strategic outline case for Northern Paris Real submitted in 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 March, twenty twenty one, and then um, I, I will. Uh, finish up in May and having been a chief executive or managing director for uh, about 15 years, I think all in, um, I'm going to take a a break and I'm a, a, a long distance walker is my hobby. And, uh, you know, long distance walking is my hobby. And I want to go to northern Spain and do a walk called the Camino, which is about 800 kilometres. Um, you sleep in fairly rudimentary little sort of uh, bunk houses along the way and uh it's an old sort of pilgrimage route and and a lot of people just do it as you know it takes about a month to do in total and then i actually want to uh, climb some monroes in scotland as well so i am taking a break um but then i will uh during that break seek to to, uh, find my next step in my career because i i enjoy what i do and 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 i'm passionate about infrastructure and, and, and transport investment and um I, you know, I will come back and do something else after that. But I, I think COVID has given us all time for reflection. And you suddenly realise just, you know, there are things you want to do at particular stages in your life. And, and, and that was really the, the decision point. Yeah. For me.
1: And, and what better uh, opportunity to reflect than whilst uh, walking, uh, climbing a mountain or walking along a 800 mile uh, historic road in, uh, in in Spain. That sounds fantastic. That's, I think a lot of people will be.
2: 800 kilometres, Robert, oh, to, be, yeah. to be fair, you know, it's 500 miles. No, still still,
1: <laughs> still long enough. Well, that sounds very impressive. I think a lot of people would be very uh, envious of you, uh, envious of you uh, doing that. Um, and Barry, uh, Barry White, thank you very much for speaking to us, and um, we wish you all the best in, in the, the remaining time that you have at TFN and uh, everything that, that holds uh, for your future. Thank, thank you for joining
2: us. Thank you, Rob. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post Political Podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and you also heard today from Rob Parsons, our political editor. Now look, we'll be back next week, but in the meantime, it would be really, really great if you could find us on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts or even Amazon Podcasts now, whichever one you usually use, and leave us a review. Uh, subscribe share tell your friends it really helps to boost us in the charts and we were really excited before christmas because we managed to reach number seven in the government category on itunes which is really big for a little podcast like ours which is often recorded you know from our front rooms and bedrooms so we were really appreciative of all your support and we'll be back with another episode next week we'll speak to you then This weekend at Augusta, it's
2: the Masters. And with 50% off a Now Sports membership, you can catch every, 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 and every. Watch all four days of the Masters live with 50% off a Now Sports membership for three months, bringing you all 11 Sky Sports channels. Join in at nowtv.com. 18 plus streamed via internet offer ends 2nd of May. Standard pricing after three months.